0: You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. And SolarRay, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring.
1: Hello, and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as is usual is David Leach, ITK analyst. David, I trust you are well?
2: Giles, I'm well, trust the audience as well. And hello to our special guest.
1: Yes, Craig Memory from the Public Interest Advocacy Center. Craig, thanks for joining the Energy Insiders podcast.
3: Thanks for having me, Giles. Hi to yourself and hi to David.
1: No worries. Look, we've got you on. You are one of the foremost experts um, and consumer advocates in the energy space. And heaven forbid, over the last 20 years, I don't think there's been enough focus on the consumer side of things. But um, especially on board to talk about the latest development, um, particularly with demand response and a major rule change that came through last week. But Look first, before we get there, I just want to have a quick discussion about some of the other things that happened this week, and particularly with Queensland. David, we've been talking and wondering about Queensland's 50% renewable energy target, and particularly that reverse auction they had called the RE400 for 400 megawatts of renewables and at 100 megawatts of storage. Well, two years later, they finally announced the shortlisted um, candidates, and... Um, I had to have a bit of a giggle because um, the process has taken so long, one of the shortlisted candidates has already been built. <laughs> well, it's That's
2: like if you just wait for long enough, everything happens. Look, I think there's, uh, it's great to see the process getting underway in Queensland. It was interesting to see the actual projects that have made the shortlist, particularly uh, given the history that there's actually quite a lot of wind projects, one or two uh, large wind projects, each of which have cost a billion or a billion and a half as uh, gold wind and uh, Wind. But the other thing uh, which I think a lot of people will point to is how much of them are in uh, North Queensland and the issues that w- we know North Queensland is a separate topic in itself in terms of the transmission and the value of electricity there compared to the rest of Australia.
1: Yes, absolutely and there's issues um, with sort of system strength and the requirement of a lot of new connections, a lot of new wind and solar firms to have things like synchronous condensers um, also, the issue with marginal loss factors, which is you know, how much energy you can actually crowd onto the same line at the same time. So um, that's interesting. Um, that um, project I did mention that had been constructed, and is that constructed is actually the Horton Solar Farm, which is a specific hydro project. I presume then the reason why they're shortlisted um, is because there's a storage element as well, which they may wish to tack on. If they manage to beat the... Um, the um, other contenders, um, Craig. Um, maybe just all Charles.
2: Charles. Charles. Just before we get on to Craig and demand response, because there's a number of major developments going on in the national electricity market, and one of the other uh, transmission is a major focus. And so, we, we haven't properly talked about the Kogarty uh, process on, on, and we won't today. But I just thought it was worth mentioning that AEMO is recommending yet another transmission line in Victoria. uh, Be built as soon as possible so that uh, I I guess, you know, that together with this demand response, five minute settlement, the Kogadi process, you you really, uh, (laughs) there's a lot of acronyms and a lot of rooting long before the understanding comes as to. But I think we can all be fairly clear that the markets, we've had very, very high levels of renewable uh, energy being produced during the seasonally heavy uh, uh, September quarter as the wind picks up. So there's a, there is a lot of change and a lot of progress being made, even if electricity prices themselves aren't moving that much just at the moment.
1: Not that much. And we're not seeing much in federal policy. So as you point out, David, there's an awful lot happening behind the scenes. Um, Kogadi, um, just to unravel that for people, is, the, um, is this effort to try and time and coordinate co- um, generation and um, network planning at the same time, the link mentioned by David in Victoria is um, to relieve that um, tension on what we've called the rhombus of regret, which is a, um, a rhombus-shaped uh, network in Western Victoria. The site of about 5,000 megawatts of wind and solar um, plants to come online sometime in the next 10 years to meet the Victorian 50% renewable target, but according to AEMO, can't fit all on the same line under current circumstances. So um about um, $10 billion, $20, or $15 billion worth of investment in wind and solar. But um, an interesting AEMO said that that should be relieved with about $370 million of network, which sounds like a good return on investment. And before we get onto demand response, I'll just make note of South Australia. Over the last two weeks, they have announced, look, just development approval. This isn't sort of, you know, this isn't sort of construction yet, but it's development approval for five really big wind and solar plus battery storage projects in that state. Now, that state's already over 50% um, wind and solar um, generation as a sort of share of demand. Um, interestingly, their Liberal government and their Energy Minister, Dan Van Hulst, um Pelikan, Welcome this latest one this week and mentioned at the same time that there was 10 gigawatts of wind and solar plus storage projects in the pipeline well in truly enough to meet their target of 100 net renewable energy by 2030 and i kind of say that um often enough this is a liberal government talking about net 100 renewable energy by 2030 and um just goes to show it's impossible well you know
2: what charles you know what? Bob Dylan had it all laid down for us in about 1963. The times they are a-changing are and the first they'll be last. South Australians had the highest electricity prices in the NEM for a variety of reasons for a long time. But I think once the new transmission line to New South Wales gets built and all this renewables comes online and they can behind the meter stuff going, they may well end up with lower prices in some other regions. But perhaps it is time to talk about demand response.
1: Absolutely. We've talked so much about generation and producing things. It's time to talk about not um, burning stuff or um, producing electricity and thinking of the other side of the equation, demand. And so, Craig, we've just spent the last few minutes talking about megawatts, this energy produced. Let's start talking about megawatts, the, um, the energy that we save and... Uh, um, last week, there was quite an important announcement about demand response, particularly in the wholesale market. It was um, a long time coming. The um, rulemaker had to think about this for many years. It was first suggested, um, gosh, almost 20 years before it actually came into effect and was fought vigorously by many of the incumbents. Before we get into the details of it, remind us what demand response is and why it's so important.
3: Thanks, Giles. So, demand response, in a simple sense, is about Looking at the supply-demand balance um, with symmetry, rather than just turning on more supply as consumer demand goes up, demand response says, well, let's look at uh, where there might be some flexibility in that supply and people who are prepared to uh, consume a bit less at times. In the context of the wholesale market, what that equates to is wholesale spot prices can sometimes exceed $14,000 a megawatt hour, we have a generation only market at the moment so that means that the only tool that AMO has at its disposal when the supply-demand balance is tight is to switch on more generators. What this reform does is it introduces the capacity to dispatch demand response in the market. So rather than paying $14,000 to a generator for example per megawatt hour, um, the market operator might pay ten thousand dollars to someone to not use a, a megawatt hour. It's a, it's just competition in one sense. So uh, there are no, it doesn't introduce any cross subsidies, and uh, and it benefits all energy users by placing downward pressure on wholesale prices.
2: I guess uh, Craig, like everything else, when you get into it, uh, it gets a little more complex, and there are various ways of. Forms and the demand response can 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 take. Uh, now they're talking about what what's the phrase for it? A, a two-sided market or something like that.
3: Mm, mm. Look, the the terminology that the AMC has used in their determination is interesting. They describe the demand response mechanism in their view as potentially a, almost a transitional thing. What they envisage is that one day, I think, competitive. Uh, forces will be such that retailers and consumers will do all those things of their own volition without having to have third parties to provide that service. What we've seen though so far in the last decade or two of uh, the energy market is that retailers prefer to cover their wholesale uh, position by vertically integrating and hedging and contracting with, with generators, that just tends to be the way they do things. And they haven't shown a lot of interest in deploying demand response as a a way of of dealing with that. So what this new rule change does is it introduces a third party to do that, who consumers can contract with, irrespective of who their retailer is. And that third party acts uh, with equivalence to a generator, meaning that there's a level playing field between the demand response providers and the generators.
1: And, and I guess it's just happening in, in, in this initial phase at sort of the big business level. Um, it's not going to be available to households immediately. We might find out why that is or uh, why that isn't um, later on. So we're talking about sort of refineries and smelters where they can other big energy users just sort of turning things off that they don't need to happen to run at certain times. Tell me though, I mean, will they really be getting paid 10, as much as $10,000 a megawatt hour for of not being used or will the price actually come down below that? It still seems like a, a hefty sum to be paid for not doing something.
3: It'll be determined by the market um, and rather than thinking of it as being paid to not do something, uh, I would be thinking of it as reimbursement for the impact of, on, on operations of not using that energy and think of it as a payment that's being made to uh, a cheaper source of supply, if you like, or a cheaper way of meeting demand supply balance than a generator in that case. It, uh, may,
2: it, it may not be cheaper. It may just be an increase in the uh, quantity of supply, which uh, results in a lower clearing price. Uh, two of the things that have been discussed or three things I want to mention at this point. One is that internationally, uh, when the Brattle Group looked at it, they found that it was much more common to find a, a good level of demand response in capacity markets mm. rather than energy markets that we don't hear. So that's one point. Secondly, I think we're going to get quite a lot of complexity in measuring, and this is inevitable, what demand actually is at any point in time. We used to measure demand by looking at how much was supplied uh, by in front of the meter generators, but now, of course, we've got behind the meter generation and we're also going to have demand that didn't actually happen. And then the third point, which I think to me is the most problematic, coming from a background of looking at businesses and looking at uh, sports and everything, is that people will try inevitably and game the system. And if there's one thing in the AEMC draft rule uh, that wasn't clear, it's how the baseline's going to be set. And I expect people will definitely try and game that baseline.
3: Interesting observations. Uh, On on the first one, which is uh, relating to a capacity market, uh, that's, that's definitely true. And it's interesting, I think there's a big... Grass is greener view with um, those fundamental market design principles here in in the national energy market. The um, uh, the energy security board is looking at the what the market design will look like after after 2025, and everyone's got different ideas of what that might be. And to, for some of us, the idea of what would have traditionally been called a capacity market um, is uh, looks like it, it it has some some benefits over other options. Although um, we would say it needs to be more of a market for flexibility that incentivizes new sources of meeting (laughs) demand and and batteries and so on, rather than incentivizing old generators the way that um, capacity markets tend to do. Your second point about baselining is an important one. So just to unpack this a little bit, uh, to estimate the actual demand response or the reduction in load, you need to estimate what the load would have been had the demand response not occurs. Now this this involves a bit of conjecture, a bit of guesswork and most importantly looking at historical data for a given consumer. Now there are different ways to do it and uh, inherently none of them can possibly be perfect. It's really important that the market operator has the opportunity to use different types of baselining approaches that are, are fit for different purposes. Also, um, you mentioned metering, an important element to getting baselining right is going to be sub-metering. If you look at some parts of a household load, for example, just because it's an easy one to pick apart, something like a pool pump might be very, very easy to baseline, however when you mix it up with the uh, rest of a household load involving all the other appliances, air conditioner, lights, so on and so forth, the signal of of the pool pump load might get washed out. the AMO AMO needs to have um, useful tools to allow them to do the baselining. Now, to avoid the risk of baselining being exploited and being uh, calculated incorrectly, there are quite a few measures that can be taken. The first one is having AMO do them so they're centralised rather than set by the aggregator or set by the customer or set by the retailer. That means that the demand response um, is determined according to the, um, ac- According to the market operator. In the same way that what we've said in our proposal for this rule change is that demand response need to, needs to be treated like generation, uh, we've put forward the idea that, well, that includes the obligations for bidding in good faith and for behaving in the market in a way that is. Um, uh, that is not deceptive and is and, and not gaming the system. So that would require the regulator to have a role in uh, making sure that demand response participants are behaving in the way that they're, that they're meant to. Um, it's also important that the baselining methodologies that are available to AMO are fit for purpose and that they really allow, to be, allow them to be updated. So if certain behaviours or patterns are observed over time, the baselines can be updated to to fix that. But one final thing on baselines and and the risk of baselining error, Um, it's probably important to stress that baselines in our own market aren't actually a new thing at all. Retailers do baselining effectively when they do an estimated read when uh, they lack metadata. They actually have to do exactly what baselining is in that context, project what an energy consumer would have used in the absence of data about what that actual use is. And retailers also do that routinely in their own hedging arrangements. So they establish baselines and estimates based on what their load profiles are. So although it's being applied in a new way here, it's um, estimating load in itself is nothing new.
1: Thanks, Craig, and I do have to interrupt this conversation. Um, We had all sorts of problems recording this conversation, unfortunately, due to technical issues and also uploading. I'm gonna blame the NBN, which seemed to be operating at about dial-up speed, but um, to save you all the boring details, from this point on, David and my contributions um, disappeared, but Craig kept on going, which was (laughs) fantastic. So I'm going to have to insert um, a rough précis of the questions that were asked him. And here, Craig, now responds to David's suggestion that he'd looked at the AMC modelling about how they actually up, set up the settlement um, design and noted that it was mighty complicated.
3: Yeah, so to answer the first question first, um, and you sort of identified it in your introduction, I think, there has been a lot of pushback for this reform from Jen Taylor's generators and and retailers for a long time it was first presumably
1: because they're making so much money out of what they've been doing before
3: well that's it it's competition now they wouldn't have much of a case if they said we don't like this reform because it's competition so instead the reasoning that they've given over the years has gone to things like oh, they they say it will introduce new systems costs to make this change for retailers and Therefore, they'll have to pass that through to uh, consumers, which is a, a perfectly valid consideration if that is a material claim. Uh, the material, materiality of that has been questioned quite, quite a lot. Um, in terms of the history of the reform, in that case, you've had it recommended in 2002 by the Para review, 2012 by the AMC's own Power of Choice review, and again last year in their Reliability Frameworks review, the AMC recommended it. In the meantime, even the ACCC uh, and Finkel have all um, expressly said that we need a demand response mechanism that allows for uh, third parties to participate. AMO, ESB have all expressed the need for one, and even COAG Energy Council in 2017, all of the ministers agreed that one was needed uh, as, as soon as possible.
1: Thanks Craig and this is when we asked him whether it was understandable that the introduction of the demand response mechanism had been delayed simply because of the overwhelming number of reforms and market redesigns that were taking place.
3: Well we think, um, so just to take a, a, a bit of a look at this actual process this time around. So what's happened was the AMC has received Uh, Not one, but three different rule change requests for relating to this mechanism. That's a bit unusual in itself. The first request was put in by uh, a group of three organisations. My organisation, the Public Interest Advocacy Centre, Total Environment Centre and the Australia Institute. Our proposal was based on a proposal that was put together by AMO a a few years ago with a few tweaks. Subsequently, the Australian Energy Council, representing the uh, retail and generation businesses, put in their own proposal for a rule change. Um, Their proposal was a bit more of a rule stay the same than a rule change, they were proposing that retailers retain retain the, the, the exclusive right to access the wholesale market with respect to demand response. And then the South Australian government put in a rule change request which was actually quite supportive of ours and introduced a different transitionary mechanism. Now where the AMC has, um, well firstly the AMC has actually picked up all of the basic principles that we said that they need to and they've made the fundamentally key decision to introduce a third party demand response provider and give them equivalence to generation in the market. So that's a big thumbs up and that's the most important element of the rule change with respect to the couple of areas that um, where they've differed from the proposals put to them, one is that they've come up with um, uh, a rather novel settlement mechanism. Now, we probably don't have time for me to go into the detail here, but it differs from, look, it is complex, but I must give them credit. It's very, very elegant. What they have proposed for their settlement, it, it involves, quite a few transactions but it achieves one really important thing and that is, it means the way that they have um, designed the retail side of the settlement means that retailers do not need to change their systems to introduce the mechanism and their wholesale cost does not change and they are compensated for any perceived or real lost revenue by the consumer reducing their load for the component that they therefore won't get paid for. Um, and that's that's done in a very, very elegant way. And it actually neutralises that point that I raised before, Giles, about um, retailers have said that there would be significant systems changes required. So we're really behind the AMC on that. It is complicated, so it's it's getting all sort of confused, all sorts of confused commentary around the place. But the, the facts of the matter are that that settlement mechanism um, make sure that no consumer is uh, cross subsidising any demand response and it makes sure that no retailer is out of pocket, but it still ensures that there's an avenue to market for that demand response being provided by the third parties. The two, th- thank you. The first, the, the, there are two things that we are going to encourage the AMC to, um, uh, to, to work on to potentially change. One of those is the timing. Now, Um, I think uh, you're exactly right David, there's a lot going on, there's um, Five Minute Settlement, there's um, uh, Global Settlement and those are just some of the things that AMO is looking at. Kagadi, ESB's post 2025 market design and a whole range of other things are all sort of swimming around. So um, it is important that we don't um, introduce anything more quickly than we, we can, however 2022 is three summers away. We have Liddell uh, coal-fired power station expected to close in that year. A lot of other coal-fired power stations are getting older and a lot of generators are already out for maintenance and there's a significant schedule for maintenance coming up. Uh, We think that the mechanism can and should have a staged introduction starting at least one or two summers sooner. That's really important so that we can give ministers the confidence that the energy market has all the tools that can be thrown at it thrown at it to maintain reliability that we need. Um, the other mechan- the other aspect of the design is that AMC has deferred the idea of allowing this to be extended to households, um, as you noted earlier, Giles, so that it's initially only um, uh, allowed to be accessed by um, large large businesses. Now the, the main reason that they have for doing that is that we need to resolve the consumer protections arrangements. On the surface that seems completely reasonable. We're introducing a new party who's delivering energy services in the demand response aggregator and the existing consumer protection arrangements in the national energy retail rules aren't designed for that party. However we think again that there is a way that at least some household loads Uh, and some households could be allowed to participate under the current arrangements and still be adequately protected. For example, pool pumps, batteries, these are things where there isn't actually an impact on households' quality of life or amenity um, in relation to that type of demand response. There is only a potential financial impact and Australian consumer law certainly covers contracts and arrangements that can relate to that. Certainly, when you look at other loads, air conditioning is an example of where it might seem all very flexible for the first couple of days of a heat wave, and it often is, but there is a real risk that people who have thermoregulatory illness um, might be, um, uh, might be placed at risk by not having the right protection arrangements. So certainly we need to make sure that the protection arrangements are visited so that we don't so those consumers aren't accidentally picked up.
1: Thanks Craig, and here we lost a two-minute conversation between myself and David, and look, I'm sure it was absolutely wonderfully witty and insightful and I can't quite remember the details, but it finished by going back to Craig and asking him about the future of demand response and particularly for households and their technologies, the existing ones such as pool pumps, but also the new ones coming along like batteries and electric vehicles and how that might operate into the future.
3: I think so. I think the reality is that there are a small number of households, very small number of households who are super engaged and would watch the wholesale spot price from one hour to the next and be poised to switch things on or off to to respond to prices. I think the bigger market for demand response is actually as a bundled service with other products that people are buying anyway. So it will be someone gets an electric vehicle from Tesla or someone for example um, or a battery um, service that's provided by someone and there will be some control of that, controlled charging and potentially controlled discharge as well and that will be provided in the background without someone having to actually hit a switch. Uh, maybe they'll, they'll need to be um, uh, have permission requested of them at the time or so on but it means that they can actually relatively passively use some of those demand response services
1: the next question came from david who was talking about the issues with controlled loads on hot water systems in south australian queensland which have historically been switched on in the middle of the night to give the coal generator something to do and the suggestion that they should now be moved to the midday hours and the solar sponge but uh, it's a complicated affair due to the nature and the cost of those um, metering and controls
3: yeah look so there's a couple of things in there worth um unpacking. Uh, And it's a very good point. Demand response is actually not new. Controlled load hot water is a perfect example of demand response. Now there tend to be two types of controlled loads for hot water. There's the off-peak which is where it's just a time switch that turns it off on or off at a certain time in the evening. And there is also um, uh, ripple control uh, hot water which is actually switched off uh, and on Um, to alleviate pressure on the network at particular times. And an extension of the sophistication of that is actually smart air conditioners. Uh, There are tens of thousands of households in Queensland who have smart air conditioners that are used by the network to um, uh, reduce that load, to reduce the impact on the grid. Um, Specifically on South Australia it's interesting that point you make. Um, and I think what, what's what been observed in South Australia is that the um, the daytime demand has been, or the daytime average demand if you like, has been taken out um, by, the, uh, by a lot of solar contribution which is the duck curve and if you observe there's actually a bit more generation at night. Um, what they're looking at doing in South Australia is incentivising people to use more load now during the day to try and fill up that curve. However there's a real risk of unintended consequences Um, in South Australia they've actually already been down the path of setting up off-peak hot water and accidentally creating a new nighttime peak at 11 o'clock when all the when all the switches um, switch on and they've had to go back and randomize a whole lot of switches at significant cost going to your cost point to actually uh, to fix that and there's a risk I think that the um, Uh, proposal now to turn what is traditionally a peak charge time into an off-peak charge time encouraging people to use more energy during the day could have unintended consequences by driving up daytime peak energy supply in South Australia at times when when there might not be a lot of solar contribution and when load might be higher and this is where demand response fits into the bigger picture I think Um, it allows for more sophisticated control more adaptable control and more responsiveness to changing situations than just setting up dumbly something to switch on or off, or sending a blunt price signal that applies at all times.
1: So let's maybe finish off, Craig, by asking you what else is on your radar? I mean, there is so much going on in this space, in the regulatory affairs, with the redesign of the market. What what are you looking out for, and um, what's holding your interest in the next big thing?
3: It's a great question. I mean, here here at PIAC, since 2017, we've been working towards the objective of New South Wales household energy bills being 25% lower by the year 2025. Incidentally, we came up with that uh, projection and goal before the ACCC came up with their estimate that bills could be 24% lower. And the way that we've envisaged that is through um, over 50 different reforms and changes of which demand response mechanism is only one. Um, So look, there is so much going on and so much that needs to be, but rather than bore everyone with processes, I think I'd flag one thing that's worth focusing on in the first half of the next decade. And it's about how we consider what's an essential service and what's a flexible service. Since energy has been marketized, arguably um, uh, I think the market has failed to give consumers Uh, who need it the affordable least cost energy supply with no risk of disconnection that they need to so that we can ensure that the um, hardest hit consumers aren't doing it tough and that energy is not a source of uh, stress or um, exacerbating uh, poverty and at the same time um, looking at consumer protections and and concerns about flexibility uh, and, and harm to consumers has restricted our ability to give consumers the opportunities through things like demand response to benefit themselves in the system by using some loads more flexibly. So I would point to there being a need in coming years for us to really separate out what we want to achieve through essential services and delivering affordable energy to people.
1: And that's probably a good place to end it because it's there where the NBN finally took Craig down and took away a conversation that David and I had also about some other matters. But look, still a fascinating discussion with Craig Memory from the Public Interest Advisory Centre. Thanks and apologies to Craig and to David. Um, Thanks so much to our sponsors Soleray Energy and Evergen. And um, presuming the NBN in this area ever gets back above dial-up speed, we will be back with you in another two weeks, another week, with another episode of Energy Insiders. In the meantime, I would like to point you to our Solar Insiders podcast, which this week looks at the huge polemic in Victoria over the solar rebate program, and our interview on the Driven podcast with Andrew Andre Borschberg, the co-pilot of the Solar Impulse solar plane that did a remarkable circumnavigation of the world a couple of years ago and his view of the future of electric aviation. Bye for now.
0: Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. With technology developed in Australia with the CSIRO, Evergen customers can maximise the return on their sustainable energy investment. Visit evergen.com.au and take control of your energy bills. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solarray Energy. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.